Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello, welcome to LawPod. My name is Dr. Luke Moffat. I'm a senior lecturer here at the School of Law. And today we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Catherine Fortin, who's an assistant professor at Utrecht and has done a lot of research on non-state armed groups. I suppose a way of starting our conversation today is what does non-state armed groups mean for listeners who've never come across this term before? Thanks for having me, Luke. Um, Yeah, so as you say, my research is focused on armed non-state actors, armed non-state groups. Um, It's focused primarily on armed groups um, that are fighting in opposition to the government in armed conflict. So either they're, well, they may also be fighting against other armed groups. So they're non-state actors. Um, They're a collective entity that is organised and they're uh, armed Okay, that's that's very helpful. Um, before we get into your prize-winning book, um, which is, of course, excellent, um, you've also uh, founded and you co-edit the Armed Groups and International Law blog. Do you maybe want to explain to our listeners a little bit about it, first of all? Yeah, so the blog, um, I set up the blog back in 2012 when I was still doing my PhD. Actually, one of the reasons I set it up was because I'd just had my first daughter and it was very difficult for me to connect to academics um, working in this area, though I was aware that there were academics working in the area of armed groups and international armed conflict. So there was a personal motivation for setting up the blog, but also feeling like there was a lot of interesting work going on in different places. And I wanted to provide a place for people to put their research, for us to link research and analysis on non-international armed conflicts, which was and remains the dominant kind of armed conflicts that happen today. So we set it up, um, I set it up, um, was quickly joined by Rohir Bartels um, at a certain point. Anisa Balal worked on the blog and now I do it together with Ezekiel Heffers. Um, we try and put news roundups, which include news stories relating to armed groups and international law, legal roundups, which are roundups of academic literature in the field, and analytical posts um, from guests, uh, authors who look at particular aspects. Um, you've contributed to a very good post on reparations and armed groups, talking about your new project. Yeah, well, you're very kind. <laughs> um, the blog, the blog, if anybody's interested, uh, should check it out. It's armed groups um, and international law. If you, if you Google search it, you'll find it quite easily. Um, but I suppose some of your biggest work, um, and obviously internationally prize-winning, has been your book on non-state armed groups and accountability and relation to like, human rights norms, which won the Association, American Association of International Law's Labour Prize. Do you maybe want to explain the book and some of its findings or conclusions? Yeah, so the book came out um, of an observation that there was a contestation in legal doctrine between different scholars working in the field on on this question of whether and when armed groups have obligations under human rights law. So quite an old question on which different scholars had taken different positions. Um, At the same time, I was struck by the fact that many international 
accountability mechanisms such as uh, the Security Council, General Assembly, um, Human Rights Council, different fact-finding missions, panels of inquiry, commissions of inquiry, were very regularly um, calling armed groups to account under human rights law, so pointing out that that armed groups had, had breached, violated human rights law. So there was this disconnect between um, the academic discussion, which still seemed to be very much divided um, and in contestation, and then the practice, which seemed to have already run away to some extent, um, but already was riddled with inconsistencies. So very often these statements saying that armed groups were bound by human rights law wouldn't be backed up by a satisfactory footnote would very often be simply referring back to previous reports that had said the same statement. And so it it seemed like the strange situation of um, an academic discourse, which was still debating the how and the should, um, like, um, what's the expression, Uh, trying to close the barn door after the horse has already bolted. Um, So I was was, um, struck by this by this dynamic and felt like that it needed that the foundations of this practice need to be really investigated was there any legitimacy in the practice um did human rights law have any added value vis-a-vis ihl some of the authors notably elizabeth sechfeld who'd written on the question had sort of said well ihl is enough so why do we have to have the conversation about whether armed groups are also bound by human rights law and that seemed to be a really interesting inquiry because obviously if the answer is that ihl is enough then we don't need to have the second discussion about how you explain it as a matter of law so i just found this really interesting um which is why it became my phd research and then ended up being my book yeah, and your book very effectively sets out that really when we talk about non-state armed groups, you know, we're 70 years on from the Geneva Conventions. And as you said, that this is the majority of conflicts are non-international armed conflicts. So we're dealing a lot with rebel guerrilla groups. And yet the law hasn't really caught up to that. Um, on the one hand, we've got these different mosaics of how international law works. We've got international humanitarian law, which is related to armed conflicts. We've got um, human rights law. We've also got international criminal law. And also more problematic, the area of, you know, counter-terrorism. So it's all these different sort of pieces of laws it's a different way of approaching the problem and yet the main law in this area international humanitarian law but the laws of armed conflict doesn't really effectively capture how non-state armed groups should act and even human rights law aimed really at states doesn't provide some sort of normative specific guidance and um, you talked about earlier on the issue of the procedure um, do you maybe want to speak a little bit about that about including non-state armed groups in the procedure of um, international law formation oh yeah so um, so this comes back, so my book is called The Accountability of Armed Groups Under Human Rights Law. And right at the beginning of the book, I kind of embark in an um, investigation of what accountability means. It seemed to me that very often you see statements in um, reports um, from the Security Council on protection of civilians in armed conflict saying, you know, that we need accountability, we need accountability, but that it has become a kind of catchword and the meaning has become less clear. So in seeking to investigate what we mean, I developed a sort of framework of what what accountability can mean using literature from public administration uh, field. And there were a couple of points that stood out there. Um, One is the notion that if an entity is held to account on the basis of an external norm, then there needs to be stability within that norm. Um, And there won't be stability if there's contestation on whether or not 
the entity in question is bound by the norm, which is why it was important, I felt, to conduct my study um, to be clear whether these instances where armed groups are being bound were legitimate as a matter of law. Um, so that was one point that fits into my framework. But another aspect of accountability which interests me and isn't something that I've gone into very much in my book, though I do, I think, talk about in the conclusion I have talked about in a different chapter, is the notion that you don't really have accountability unless you give the actor that you're seeking to hold account an opportunity to reply to the allegations against them. So if you simply make a statement about their behaviour and there's no opportunity to, for recourse, then you've achieved something different. You've achieved maybe some sort of public censure, but you haven't achieved accountability, at least under the definition that I used. So this observation raises some interesting questions as to whether... Um, international procedural mechanisms which have started turning their their vision, their scrutiny um, to armed groups. So traditionally they were set up by states, they, they scrutinised the behaviour of states and now very often in a situation of non-international armed conflict they will make findings on, rightly I think, the behaviour of the state and the non-state actor. The state will very often have a place within that procedure to um, to to answer those allegations and to provide their own side of the story. But I think it's interesting to note that the armed group doesn't. Now, I'm not advocating, as you know, we already talked about today, that armed groups should have a table at these international um, uh, accountability mechanisms. But I think that within the work that's done on accountability, there is sometimes space for armed groups to be given an opportunity to reply and I use the example of the United Nations assistance mission in Afghanistan where that field office um, developed a practice of making sure that their protection of civilian reports ended up in the hands of the Taliban and the Taliban uh, developed a practice of replying and in the context of that exchange and dialogue there became uh, a dialogue on the norms so a dialogue log on the definition of civilians, for example, and possibly um, more ownership of those norms. Um, I also mentioned to you that when you have reports that are issued from commissions of inquiry, um, having set out this definition of accountability, I've now developed a habit of always checking to see with the recommendations at the end of the report who they're directed to. So very often you have these long reports um, and they'll set out documenting violations by state actors and then the same number of paragraphs even more um, devoted to violations by armed non-state actors and then the recommendation section sometimes not always is directed only at the state and the international community and there are no recommendations addressed to the armed non-state actor and I think that it would be a good opportunity to address recommendations to the non-state actor. It makes sense that if you're going to document the violations, you would also document recommendations. There may be a question mark whether they'll ever read it, but it seems to me that it doesn't matter that you should still include the recommendations. Yeah, yeah. I suppose like at the heart of a lot of these issues in terms of the law and, and the practice and who's been aimed at when it comes to non-state armed groups is the reluctance to, to give them the recognition of legitimacy that they don't want to treat them like a state or some sort of um, subject of international law and so there's this resistance that continues you know 70 years after the Geneva conventions that the non-state armed groups aren't really 
part of international law, so why should we address them? And yet the reality is that most conflicts now are non-international armed conflicts that involve non-state armed groups. And you mentioned in your talk, you know, at one point in Syria, there was over a thousand um, armed groups operating within the country. I think uh, at one point in Misrata in Libya, there was over 230 armed groups. So they're not going to go away. And there's this upward trend that this is the new reality, but the law is not there. But a big hurdle is the issue of legitimacy, of recognising them as subjects of international law, which goes to the heart of both humanitarian law and, uh, to a greater extent, human rights law. Um, Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is an issue that comes up very often. And I think a conversation can be had as to whether or not it's a live issue with human rights law versus IHL. Possibly it is um, for different reasons. Of course, when Common Article 3 was drafted, it was already an issue. And that's why you have the phrase in Common Article 3, which indicates that um, the application of the article to... um, uh, states and armed non-state actors won't affect their legal status. Um, so th- people have this this fear that recognising that armed groups um, are their obligations under international law somehow uh, make them closer, I think, to, to statehood, um, as if it's it, legal personality is some kind of continuum where statehood is kind of the holy grail. And I think it's not true, first of all, that all armed groups want to be states. Um, many don't and don't even have that objective. Um, I think also, you know, we, we have uh, in international law for a long time now this recognition that you can have um, different forms of legal personality. So you can have obligations under international law without necessarily having rights. And I think that's the case with the IHL framework. Um, uh, I'm just thinking as to whether that's true. But certainly the majority of the provisions um, in IHL that are addressed to armed groups um, as collective entities um, are, are providing obligations. Um, with human rights law, I think the issue of legitimacy potentially raises more concerns for some people. And I think the reason for that is that human rights law is um, more traditionally applied to states. IHL is a very pragmatic body of law, so it's all about kind of dealing with a temporary period of time. So if you recognise that armed groups have obligations under IHL, you're saying that for the duration of the armed conflict, they will have those obligations and then they'll stop. Human rights law, of course, because it applies in peace as well as armed conflict, doesn't have that temporal parameter necessarily. So, I, And it also doesn't have... It's not quite the same pragmatic body of law, so it's slightly more aspirational. Um, and I think that's where the worry comes, that... You know, if if you put an obligation upon armed group to do something better, to provide education better or to provide healthcare better, then you're essentially helping them with their state building project. Um, I understand these concerns. I think it's important to separate the legal arguments from the political to the extent that that's possible and to recognise that armed groups are do have obligations under international law and that that doesn't mean that they're approaching statehood. I mean, there's a difficult tension there. I get it. Yeah. Um, another so tying back to that and also then the accountability issue is who do these armed groups feel that they're answering to? And so, you know, as international lawyers we all think, you know, international law is as important part to play in this. But I suppose from engaging with, you know, armed groups on the ground, 
they feel that uh, in some extent they're speaking to international audiences and so they want to incorporate some of these norms that they're not using child soldiers, they're signing up to data commitment under Geneva call. Um, but there's also their sort of their local constituency where they're trying to maintain and uh, cultivate sort of civilian support and so they'll do actions which comply with certain norms like they won't uh, target certain civilians in a particular area in order to minimise the audience cost uh, to that local civilian community which supports them. So I, I think that what we're seeing increasingly is a more interdisciplinary approach to these issues that with international law we sort of kept in our own silo. But there's been a lot of really good research and political silence about the nature of violence, uh, civilian agency um, but also the way in which non-state armed groups act. That sort of challenging these perceptions that it's not just the fact that non-state armed groups are increasing phenomenon but also how we understand the violence and how we understand people who live within the conflict and in your book you sort of capture that in your, your chapter two you're talking about that aspect and also then towards your, the end of the book you talk about the nature of there's a vacuum here that if we're talking about the effectiveness of these norms we need we need something there that human humanitarian law covers some of these aspects but also neglects others. I think, you know, from our own like, research over the last uh, couple of years, where we've been working with armed groups and victims, we've been exploring the issue of, of reparations. So it's, it's, it's trying to be accountability, but not within a legal international framework. We're not saying you have to fulfill these obligations because you violated you know, international uh, covenants on civil and political rights, but thinking about how they can acknowledge and remedy the harm that they've done. Um, and so this can include things like giving some compensation to the victims, apologies, build memorials. Um, but I think there's a bigger action here and it fits nicely within your book because in your book you say that there's a range of actors that can be responsible but there's also a range of capable actors who can sort of fulfill these rights so it's not about one or the other it's maybe overlapping perhaps and fulfillment of obligations mm. that makes sense yeah i mean i've i've gained a lot of insights and i think it's clear from my book that from um political and social science literature um on and and it's out of that that I've developed this kind of everyday life perspective on lived realities for civilians living under the control of armed groups. Um, as you know, there's been sort of really an explosion of literature on rebel governance um, over the last years, largely carried out by political scientists, cultural anthropologists, um, who've really documented what armed groups do, why they have recourse to violence, what the relationship is with the civilian population, how armed groups are structured. And this literature is really fascinating, and I think it needs to be looked at more by lawyers. Um, because it provides um, just a very important insight into um, the way armed groups operate, the way they're structured, the lived realities on the ground um, for civilians. I think it can be quite challenging read, reading this literature for lawyers. I also work with um, political scientists and anthropologists and conflict studies scholars at Utrecht and outside Utrecht. And I sometimes find it quite challenging because... Some of the binaries, some of the legal categories we work with, the civilian fighter category, um, which are so important to the principle of distinction, um, are are so are dealt with so differently in other fields. Um, and I think that um, that when working with scholars from other disciplines, you need to that, that can become a challenge because you've got to sort of, I think at least, um, remain loyal to the kind of principles within your own discipline whilst 
remaining open to insights from other areas. Um, so I think also in that question, you are um, putting your finger on another part of the study, which was seeking to identify this other um, question, which I looked at, which was the added value of human rights law versus IHL. And um, so there, you know, I use this literature from um, social and political sciences to develop, to sort of test the extent to which IHL framework is sufficient to address this lived reality um, for civilians on the ground living under the control of armed groups. And so here, of course, I identify some norms which are found in human rights law, which aren't dealt with at all in IHL. So a few examples would be, you know, the freedom of expression, freedom of association, right to work, right to living conditions. Um, and then another one which is important is the right to legal personhood or the right for children to be registered at birth. And interestingly, on, on that last one, I've been lately working on a project together with two scholars from um, Melbourne University on so trying to develop and test some of these theories um, on legal identity. So this is a norm that isn't really dealt with in IHL, um, certainly in the non-international armed conflict um, framework. Um, and it relates to um, something so simple and practical, which is what do people do when they're living in territory controlled by armed groups, when a baby is born, um, when someone dies, when two people get married? How is that life event documented? And this is this asking this question together with these um, other scholars, we convened a workshop in Utrecht where we got people working um, from Ukraine, Iraq, Syria, from uh, Myanmar, um, uh, Sri Lanka, and some other countries um, to talk about this notion of the documentation of life events in rebel territory. And it was just so interesting to realize what a problem this is, what a really acute problem this is. Um, and it's dealt with in lots of different ways in different countries. So in many instances, armed groups or community leaders are issuing some kind of documentation uh, birth certificates, um, death certificates, which of course are so important for people living in those territories because it has a kind of cascading effect in that they need to then get use these documents to get access to nationality, uh, which they probably can't if it's issued by an armed group, but uh, humanitarian services, education, these kind of things. So then the big question is, well, what's the value of these documents? What are the obligations of the state, if any, to recognise the content of these documents? So that's been a really interesting project that I've worked on lately. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. We sort of came across that when we were interviewing victims in Uganda last year. And for those... Um, women and girls who were, you know, taken by the Lord's Distance Army, it was a big issue because you had children who were born in the bush and then when they got away from the group and came back and tried to reintegrate in the, into their community, you've got the children now who are out of even secondary school, they're now in their late teens, early 20s, who want to go to university, but they don't have those that documentation. Um, the state refused to recognise them as citizens, so they're almost within the country but also stateless. And so there's a big push now to get that recognition. And I suppose that's what I like about your approach to this, that IHL serves its function, but also when it comes to human rights law, it doesn't it has that permanence that goes over time that when you're talking about non strong groups, they can be quite fragile, they can't be quite temporary, um, and they can fragment. But when a conflict ends, there's still the ongoing human rights obligations. And 
when it, when it comes to those women who who are trying to get recognition for their children, it's it's about citizenship. It's about recognising them as human beings and dignity that they can enjoy things like the right to education. And it's it's interesting then maybe to explore them with non-strong groups. How can better those documentation be provided? Mm. Um, but it also for them there's that other dynamic of if they're acknowledging that these children are born, is that a way of documenting that they've committed sexual violence mm. um, and rape? Um, and do they even have the capacity? And so a big problem with non-Sudan groups is sort of, on the one hand, the whole law legitimacy, but also in the day-to-day, how are they going to fulfil these sort of administrative tasks? Mm-hmm. And we talked um, earlier today about armed groups doing sort of policing work and um, where they're doing um, a response to community who the community doesn't trust the state or the state is, is absent. And when this happens for a prolonged period of time and the armed group controls the territory, it's that tension of... You know, the, the armed group is using certain violence in Northern Ireland, carrying out punishment attacks, punishment shootings, which cause terrible injuries to those who are affected. But where does then the law sort of fit into that? Where does the state fit into that? What is, how do you improve that practice when there's a need and a community push for these armed groups to act in this way? And yet at the same time, it goes against human rights obligations. It goes against IHL. Um, there seems to be a continuing gap. And I think one of the difficulties of with international law and engaging these groups on law is law is quite technical, it's quite complex, and it's difficult to see how it then works on the ground, on the day-to-day, over time, when there isn't sufficient resources and where there is still fighting against the state or fighting against other groups. Uh, and so it's, it's those, those broader dynamics, I suppose, it's, that makes this area quite difficult um, to do research, mm-hmm. never mind find solutions on. Um, there's yeah. not a question in that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think there are lots of tensions in this area. Um, so I, I just wanted to pick up on your first example of the LRA. So after the armed conflict, this is, of course, playing out massively in Iraq right now um, with regard to the Islamic State. So hundreds of thousands of people who are living under the control of the Islamic State, babies being born, having got birth certificates um, from the Islamic State. Um, then... Um, and being forced to to have these these documents and and having to their state documentation confiscated from them, they then end up in these ID camps where they don't have documentation. They've often destroyed them. They know that it will endanger them. And we're not just you know what I what I think is important is of course there's been a lot of focus on citizenship issues with regard to foreign fighters, but I think that that's just you know the tip of the iceberg here. Like really, there are so many hundreds of thousands of ordinary Iraqis who are living under the territory of the Islamic State. So they're now undocumented. They're trying to get documents um, because without documents, you can't access the services within the camp. Um, But even lawyers who are working with them, trying to get them documents, are being accused of sort of material support for terrorism because there's such a strong um, sort of idea that these individuals are members of the Islamic State or associated with the Islamic State. So... It's really problematic. Um, in protracted armed conflicts, I think this was moving on to your, your second point, where the tensions can be really strong. Um, when I first started doing my research on this, I was kept on being drawn to the situation of Ivory Coast, which was an area, of course, where the Force Nouvelle was in control of the north of the country for years. And for some of those years, there was quite a stalemate. Um, so there wasn't hostilities, it, and the armed group was doing some 
governs activities, but not all. And interestingly, they had um, inherited quite a large prison population. So, of course, we tend to forget that when we think about armed groups. We think about armed groups imprisoning people because of the armed conflict, people who are a threat to their security, for example. But when an armed group takes over control of the whole half of a, of a part of the country, they may well just take over control of prisons overnight. And so for the Force Nouvelle, this was a real, really difficult issue. And for the international community, this was a really difficult issue too, as to what should the Force Nouvelle do with this prison population. And there are some really interesting reports from the country uh, office, UNOCRI at the time, um, where they would uh, doc document the prison populations in both the state-controlled areas and the non-state-controlled areas and make suggestions for how uh, the conditions needed to be improved. And, you know, some of the suggestions they made would be um, this armed group didn't have courts. So it was quite an interesting dynamic. They had prisons, but they didn't have courts, which means that the people who were then being imprisoned didn't have any kind of due process. But the people, there were some people who'd been there from the beginning. So they were making recommendations like, for example, OK, you don't have the ability to do policing or the kind of the second. You might be able to do policing, but you can't then do the criminal trials because you haven't got any judges. So maybe you should consider um, using alternative forms of justice or having amnesties for small crimes or a fine system. Do anything in order to prevent putting more people in prison and going through the prison population, seeing which people could be released because it was such a imperfect situation that this armed group had this prison population. But in my mind, this was a kind of example of an armed group um, holding people without the, it being necessarily connected to the armed conflict. It was kind of it just happened. Yeah, yeah. We were engaging with the FARC over the past year or two, and I think one of the quotes that we picked up from other commanders was, "We're not a guardian agent, angel of civilians. You know, we're here to fight and win a war, and civilians are part of that. But at the same time, you know, they'd be called in to adjudicate on disputes between different groups. Or, um, in one instance, there was an indigenous community where somebody had was." provide information to the army and it's causing tensions within the community and so they wanted the person removed and so there's other members of the community who wanted them killed and I suppose we, sh we shouldn't over legalise non-strong groups or romanticise them um, in another instance in Medellin we were talking to um, a civil society organisation and they were talking about how the paramilitaries were called in by landowners to mediate a labour union dispute and there's there's clear power dynamics when it comes to civilians where you've got armed groups who've got weapons um, who can force what the landowner or you know, the, the big party is in that situation so there's, there's benefits and also dangers um, and I suppose what we're also talking about here in the one hand is you know law but also the gaps within the law and that there's in your talk today you talked about the notion of values and like building ownership into that and i think that nicely ties into both the the, the force novels in uh, cote d'ivoire where they were controlling territory and it's, it's a bit similar to the kurds when the, the, the had the Turkish invasion recently where they had isis uh, detainees in prisons that they controlled and they were being threatened by this incursion and also on the other hand your first point about this issue of you know wives and children of isis members that international humanitarian law it's the end of hostilities so they sort of fall outside that issue in human rights law you know, countries like United Kingdom don't have you know, jurisdiction, extraterritorial, because um, they're not in effective control. So it's just these sort of gaps where we've got people who are effectively 
stateless um, and our broader values of human dignity, human rights, um, humanity sort of fall by the wayside. There's almost, again, this sort of vacuum. So how do we sort of bridge this? You know, so like we've got a, we've got a lot of law and we still haven't got many solutions to this evolving nature of conflict. Yeah, I mean, the SDF situation is, raises lots of really complicated issues, of course, because it tied into this ongoing debate about armed groups and detaining. You know, did is there an authority to detain in IHL? And if not, where would that authority to detain be found? Now, I'm, you know, different people take different views on this. I personally don't think IHL contains a an authority to detain, but people who do would say that it only contains an authority for um, for states. And I believe that even the ICRC, um, who I, I think use a different word, I think they say power to detain, indicates that some sort of external um, basis for detention will be needed in order for that detention not to be arbitrary. So here you had this armed group who um, most states in the world looking at the legal framework would say didn't have a, a, a power to detain. So it was detaining these people under international law arbitrarily um, because it didn't have that legal basis. It might have had its own law, question mark, whether its own law was um, was sufficient in order to be a legal basis. But you also had this strange dynamic of the other states not wanting the individuals that this armed group was holding. So a kind of stopgap solution being, well, we'll provide you with resources to carry on detaining them for the moment. So we'll we'll provide you with, we'll help you get better facilities. So there's, you know, there's so much tension here. On the one hand, you don't want to legitimate them. You don't want to acknowledge they have an authority to detain these people. On the one hand, you want them to carry on detaining them. So you even help them detain them. Um, you know, it's there. There is so much going on there that needs um, unpacking. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose you know, under you know, common Article Three of the Geneva Conventions, it talks about not taking hostages. So, how do you sort of fit the detention, like detaining people that they see as a security risk? So, I'm just thinking of like the FARC um, and how they held hostages for years. Some who were soldiers and police members, and um, but also they held like political uh, members of the the Congress and other landowners and held them for years, sometimes up to 10, 12 years. And so it's not just finding the legality, it's also the conditions and the time spent in a jungle prison or a prison in, you know, some sort of detention centre in Syria. Like, it's a long time for somebody to go through. So when we're thinking about broader values of what we're trying to do, like with IHL is trying to minimise suffering um, and human rights laws about, you know, improving dignity and rights, that's because there's these gaps um, and because of the practice, people live a terrible existence. And I know this is something that the Special Jurisdiction for Peace, is, it's their first case. How do you repair people who've been kidnapped? And how do the FARC repair that after people being detained and losing large chunk of their lives out because they're held as hostages? But for the FARC, it was detention. You know, so uh, mm. it's the sometimes how the laws interpreted can be very different in this area. Mm. I mean, the, the, the issue of how you repair for years of detention is not one is one I find really hard to answer. What what answer did you come to that question? But I've been reading Ingrid Benacore's book um about how she was held 
um, she was this uh, presidential candidate who was kidnapped and even in the first month you know her father's quite close to who dies um, and just losing that in life experiences and I suppose like from a lot of victims we engage with it is when you have a death of a family member they're disappeared uh, you're tortured or you suffer serious injury or sexual violence part of your pathway in life is ruined or is, yeah. is, is fundamentally changed um, or lost and so what we've been looking at is how, is how that sort of social fabric is torn apart but then how do you also then put it back together and I think a big part of that is how do we engage non-state armed groups in that, that they're not just terrorists. These are human beings that felt aggrieved to raise up weapons. They had community support. So generally large you know, percentage of the population supported the action and seen it as legitimate. And even after the conflict, see it as legitimate. And so that's, I suppose, what one of the tensions I think is if you know Iraq, Syria, is that, yes, the violence against ISIS might have ended, but the problems still there, you know, the violence that was used against ISIS, the violence and violations that continue to happen against their family members, you know, isn't going to resolve itself. That if we continue to treat them as terrorists, then they're going to be continue to be aggrieved, and it's just going to ingrain that grievance for the next generation, the generation after mm. that. And I suppose, you know, are we sort of setting the battleground for the next war mm. in 10 years, 20 years' time, like we did when we did debathification and the liberation of Iraq, where if ISIS was created when you had members of the Iraqi army had to lose all their pensions and all their rights, and there was nowhere else for them to go. So I just sometimes the law doesn't get it right and we don't understand the social context well enough. And so like like you say, we need to learn more from these different disciplines to more appropriately respond. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the situation, again, coming back to in Iraq, um, using sweeping counterterrorism laws instead of international criminal law to deal with the crimes committed by the Islamic State is not helping pinpoint the specific behavior the specific violations. So in taking a kind of membership approach and making that extremely broad, then you're losing the ability to use uh, law as a tool to achieve accountability that I think is meaningful for the victims because the crime that they've suffered isn't being addressed in a very visible way. Um, and, and your other point, I think, is true, too, that if you are incredibly wide with your definition of terrorism. So there was a report that came out recently by the Special Rapporteur against, against, uh, on counterterrorism. And she, there was a line in this report that said something like providing maternal duties is, does not constitute material support. And I read this line and thought, no, of course it doesn't. Um, but the fact you had to say that providing yeah. maternal duties yeah it seems crazy that they had to say that but I was at, in a meeting recently regarding uh, prosecutions using counterterrorism law in Europe and there an argument was made that um, Islamic State wives um, could be um, prosecuted for participating in a terrorist organisation because of their um wifely duties so the examples were given well they washed these fighters laundry they cook for them at the end of the day which just seems absurd I mean if anyone accused me for participating in my husband's work organization not not that I wash his laundry <laughs> or cook for him but I you know I do sometimes contribute to a joint household and if we I think we need to stop and and have a reality check sometimes and listen to ourselves and and and, and say and find the line between saying yes you know 
maybe there was something morally abhorrent in being the wife of an ISIS fighter. And maybe we want to use law to recognize that. But if we start using law um, in wrongly, then we lose the strength of the, the law. And so we need to be careful with our tools because we don't want to sort of blunt them too much. Yeah, I think that's a broader trend within human rights and international law is that we're seeing a real rollback yeah. of sort of foundational principles that you know things which we wouldn't have thought about 10 years ago even 20 years ago are now happening um, and I suppose you know f- from engaging with people here you know ex- ex-combatants you know some of them are now human rights advocates and for them they see the way in which the law is, is constructed is, is continues to cause social stigma for them so for those women who were um, sexually enslaved by the LRA for them coming home, they were given an amnesty by the state, and so they were they were forgiven for being members of the Lord's Assistance Army. But for them, they were like, you know, why why am I being forgiven? The state should be apologising to me because they left us in the hands of the rebels, and our children were born and don't have like their full rights as citizens. So like, why am I being treated as the perpetrator? Because I was the victim in this. And I suppose talking to other more uh, local ex-combatants here, for them, it's the way in which the law is used uh, to exclude them, and um, that certain ways that they're discriminated from certain jobs but that has like social repercussions that it's a way of othering it's seeing them as less than human that they deserve not to have those jobs because um, they killed others um, but these people would have served their time and so there's no notion of like rehabilitation you can't undo the harm you can't make it good so then you're always there's always this black and white that you're just bad mm. um, and I think that's it's more of a right wing take on human rights law and it's, it's an increasing factor in, in international law that's about state making and the state is just having a monopoly mm. of force and the law is being used as another tool of conflict of trying to win that and so the big issue here is the notion of lawfare and um, that the law is being waged in a way to beat the enemy and it, it happens on both sides like we've seen non-Sudan groups but also state try to use this to redefine the past and also to continue to fight it now in the present and so it's, it's just it's messy and I think if people aren't attuned to those broader nuances and we forget the basic principles about everybody is born free and equal in, in rights and dignity that we lose a little bit of ourselves you know we're only you know 70 years on from the second world war and from the big explosion of international law from the geneva conventions to the universal declaration of human rights that we've forgot what we struggled for and what we gained yeah i mean i totally agree i think you said it really well um i think that it's really important to try and keep the political um using international law as a political tool as reduced as possible um uh we t- we talked earlier about you know the, the the really worrying developments this week um in relation to the pardons that were given by president trump to the three servicemen in the US, um, I think two of which had been convicted for war crimes and one was accused of war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, And um, these pardons were given as if um, this was um, a sort of thank you for their good service. Um, But there's been a lot of interesting commentary also from within the military saying that this isn't a thank you at all because it's actually just so harmful for the people within the military who are trying to instill um, respect for law and respect for military values um, and that in these instances in some of the instances um, um, fellow servicemen had had testified against them and what that then does for those people who've put themselves on the 
on the line. Um, and then for po politics to suddenly be able to come in and wave a magic wand and take these convictions away it is somehow corroding the the legal framework itself um, and um, uh, and making it uh, less giving it less integrity somehow yeah no absolutely Which, yeah. and there's a broader debate also in the UK about the recent allegations on Afghanistan and Iraq and you know there's a preliminary examination at the International Criminal Court there's also historical prosecutions of soldiers going on here in Northern Ireland that there's a way of the state saying these are soldiers this is a witch hunt but in a way by not upholding the rule of law and not having that sort of warrior's honour that where people who commit crimes should be prosecuted it's almost like a taint that then sits on the army or the or these forces that it's permissible to kill civilians but we expect non-armed groups to act their higher code so it's again about values and how organisations own those values and you know the United States the UK you know France and others were the ones who pushed these sort of values at the end of the Second World War because they were trying to ensure reciprocity and how they would be treated by others and um, but also try to build a new legal order whereby we were you know, had values and law where law was imbued with that. That was about it was about fighting with honour for something better. That he didn't kill civilians because he had obviously practical repercussions of then then supporting the enemy, but also in terms of how your soldiers fought was professional. Mm. It was something with honour. Mm. And so when when soldiers kill civilians, instead of like holding them to account and prosecuting them and trying to dissociate from those who use violence in that way, there's increasingly a scene of just closing ranks yeah. and a way of sort of protecting our own because you know they're fighting a good fight they're fighting for us and they're fighting against them and it's causing uh, violence to the other and I think that's very dangerous because again that's about devaluing human life and the broader notion is what we're trying to do for human rights and humanitarian law yeah I agree uh, thank you Catherine for that very insightful and very enriching discussion uh, thanks so much for coming along today and also for giving a talk at Queen's we've uh, loved having you here and we hope to have you back very soon I hope to come back very soon thank you thanks, thanks.